Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, reporting on the coronavirus. So there's a lot we don't know about what's going on with that virus, about how infectious it is, how deadly it is. And one of the reasons we don't have as much information as we would like is the sort of culture of information in China, where the virus has emanated from. One of the really fascinating parts about this story is that it is possible that the reporting around the virus is changing the culture of information in China and how official channels deal with stories like this and outbreaks like this. And it's just a fascinating way to look at how the Chinese government controls information. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Han Zhang, who's uh, a member of the editorial staff of The New Yorker and has written a piece for NewYorker.com about how the coronavirus is, is sort of challenging China's information system. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. I thought your piece was fascinating because it, it, what's happening is that there is this there is an urgency that citizens feel to understand what's going on and understand what the threat to them is sort of personally mm-hmm. and that's running up against this kind of long established wall of protection that Chinese authorities have built around information. So how is that playing out now? Right. Um, I think in the beginning, people, because this this is very abrupt for an ordinary reader, consumer of news, because people didn't know anything till 21st, People's Daily published President Xi Jinping saying the day before that there is this thing going on and basically the party vowing to really take, uh, to take care of that. So the party was saying they were going to take care of something that people really didn't even know was a problem. Right. Um, That's how the message comes out. It's always the thing happening is not the message, but we are taking care of it. Oh, by the way, there is a thing. Uh-huh. That's that's normally <laughs> but how. But you don't it need to worry out. about it, right? Nothing to worry about. Right. We we will we will tackle this. You write in your piece in the New Yorker. This is this line really stands out. You you, you say that because of heavy censorship and a tight top down control of information, people in China are habituated to be cautious and apolitical in their online behavior, but the coronavirus seemed to weaken that conditioning. So it's changing the way, it's changing people's, what people are willing to say online? Yeah, that's changing. The urgency of the virus didn't decide that people really need to know what's going on, how bad it is, whether they need to ma- uh, wear face masks. How do they wear face masks? What, uh, what kind of face masks are effective for the kind of daily routine they have now? Mm-hmm. Um, so people demand this kind of information. Previously, people are used to, you know, um, state media pr- basically are just a vehicle for propaganda, and people think that's no big deal. It doesn't really change their daily life. But now with this epidemic going on, people are very worried in the channel for valid information um, and guidance on how they should feel and how they should make plans for their family, really. Um, kind of just make people saying say things and demand things they previously aren't comfortable doing. Does the fact that this is coming so soon after the Hong Kong protest also, is that also affecting how people view official channels of information on this? I've seen very interesting comments on social media. So freedom of speech, freedom of press is not something all Chinese people are thinking about or even feel they personally are 
this kind of I- Western ideas. Mm-hmm. And many people who criticized Hong Kong and the protesters for going so all out and making troubles for this kind of ideals, I've seen uh, Chinese commentators on the internet saying, now I kind of understand what they're going for because mm-hmm. um, we kind of do need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, from the government side, of course, there it's it just feels like one cri- one major crisis after another. And it, in, in the beginning, it's not very clear whether they made up their mind about how to control this information given it's developing, given that they do have the need to get news out to no- let people know it's serious because, you know, Chinese New Year was coming up. People, if they think it's business as usual, um, tens or hundreds of millions of people will be traveling all over the country, which, which would be a disaster mm-hmm. adding to the epidemic. So they had the, the government had the need to get this news out, but how much of this news is allowed to get out? What kind of details are allowed? So you see this gap of the censors don't necessarily know where their guideline is anymore. How did you report this story? How did you do this? Because you reported it from New York, right? Right. How did you add up the abundance and reliability of information coming from Western news agencies that have correspondents there or or people there and Mm -hmm. Chinese news agencies? Um, I mean, the angle of my story is mainly uh, the information distribution, and I was seeing, I was, it's all consuming for me because I care about what's happening, and um, just seeing, I read, um, you know, Western media, English media, and there is also a lot of Chinese media who actually send people to Wuhan, um, and then there's the the social media or like the more independent outlets who are people really see this as highly relevant thing that's uh, unfolding and they want to add to it. Uh, so I was getting information from all those um, different different outlets and um, sort of just composting everything together. Um, and of course, you need this uh, kind of skepticism because everybody have. Uh, limited access given to the nature of the crisis, but also uh, the nature of uh, uh, what is allowed by the state, what kind of reporting, what kind of access journalists can get. Um, So kind of just reading from all different sides and talking to experts who are watching um, Chinese media and censorship for a long time, running my theories and observations by them and see what they have come up with. Um, you've been writing about China for The New Yorker since you got there mm-hmm. in 2018. Did you notice anything different this time on this story in terms of how aggressive people were willing to be in their comments or even how willing they were to being quoted by you? Uh, right. Uh, I had a lot of trouble locating a Chinese journalist to speak for this story. I was hugely interested. Uh, I mean, it's it's people recognize that this is kind of history making kind of moment and for journalists and for ordinary people. Um, however, I as I was going about trying to get interviews, I realized there's this uh, deep seated sense of that this is sensitive and speaking to foreign media is potentially dangerous or bad for your um, outlet. Uh, so that side was very, very difficult. I ended up finding one such journalist who is brave enough to 
uh, speak with me and really uh, kind of open a window into w- what is it like inside a Chinese newsroom and how things have shifted in just uh, weeks after the epidemic was announced by the state. Who was who that journalist you're talking about? I agreed with her that we're not going to uh, reveal her identity, but she is a journalist in her 20s and had had written important stories on this outbreak. You also talked to Chen Jiushi? Chen Jiushi, yes. Yeah, who to me was fascinating because um, this is a person who wasn't somebody we would consider traditionally right. a journalist, a lawyer, right? Right. Many people, uh, I guess media experts or j- some journalists probably don't consider him a journalist, but he's definitely unconventional. But he was he started doing videos mm-hmm. trying to explain what was going on here. Right. What was the... What was his and and he sort of strikes me as somebody who's quite sort of brave and and not unconcerned but mm-hmm. willing to take whatever um, fallout right. resulted. We'll talk what ha- talk about what happened to him, uh-huh. but just tell me about your conversations with him. Right. So I I I I knew of him before this, and I always thought it was kind of an interesting outspoken person, and you don't see a lot of people like him uh, living and working in China and speaking as if there is no censorship, there is no consequence to what kind of whatever kind of criticism he decided is true mm-hmm. uh, to speak to. So, and then I noticed that he had uh, traveled to Wuhan the day after the lockdown and start, started to post uh videos that he took from hospitals, from cremation home, from a uh, hospital that was under construction, and then the quarantine centers that was being set up, um, and speaking to locals, speaking to people uh, in the hospital lobby, um, as if nobody was telling him what is off limit, and as if that he is not thinking about that. One expert kind of uh, commented that it's hard to think for him, it's hard to think of Chen as a journalist because a journalist always consider, like, you would not, you would not risk to lose all access by doing things uh, reckless, right. one may f- say, about uh, like Chen Qiushi does. But he was not thinking what's stopping him. He was just thinking that's where, that's where the information are, that's where I'll find out things, and I'm going there. That, that's how I observe he operated. And, and just just so I'm clear on the kind of, on, on the effect of what he was doing, mm-hmm. he wasn't arguing. What, 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 what was the effect of his videos to show that, for instance, the government response was inadequate, or that the treatment was the treatment facilities were subpar, or was he was there was there a strong editorial point, or was he just saying, look, here here is what it is, here here is what is available. What Chen, he told me that he came to journalism because he wanted to do social commentary. So Uh there is that take on it. But Mm -hmm. I would think from watching his videos from Wuhan that he was there. He was, um, you know, he ride, uh, he used to ride, in the beginning he used a rental bike and then someone lent him a moped. So he started like ride around town and Mm -hmm. just uh, talk to people. So we definitely saw a lot of things that you wouldn't see in um, Western or Chinese media because people would think the risk is too high to get there. Uh, but he give us all those uh, uh, information to contextualize what's going on. He interviewed uh, 
someone whose family just passed away because of the virus. Mm -hmm. um, so that's all information that, so to speak, real journalists or mainstream journalists have too much to lose to really do. Mm -hmm. And um, he spoke of frustrations of what one person like him could do in a big, big city like Wuhan under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how did you find him when you talked to him? Was he completely open and free? Did he feel completely unburdened by? Yeah, he was really free to speak his mind. Um, I think it was more than a week, was it? It was a few days or a week after he had landed in the city. Um, and he was kind of hitting this almost like an emotional bottleneck. And I think he was pretty down that around that two, three days because he was realizing all the, I think all the information he's absorbing was getting to him mm -hmm. and he didn't see where this, where there is an end for, to all the suffering and problems. Mm -hmm. um, but then he just decided to stay there and report as long as he's able to. And there is a chilling line in your story about how he left told his mom he was going to go visit a quarantine center, which he had been doing, mm -hmm. and no one's heard from him since. No. Still. No. Is this a, is this a, um, is it a situation that the other media in China, in China is on? I mean, is, there, is there interest in finding out where he is and how he is? In China, here's the story. So Chen started doing this kind of reporting earlier and he went to Hong Kong after uh, uh, in 28, uh, 2019 to report on the protest and after that all his social media accounts were taken down in mm. China so and he was telling me during the interview how like uh, even if someone posts about him with his name in it or just his initials in it or his face in it, the post will be taken down very quickly. And he said discussions about him does exist inside China. Mm -hmm. It's only the negative ones, people who are criticizing him. Mm -hmm. And if you log on Twitter and YouTube, which he had transferred his work to after being essentially erased from Chinese internet, you can see people are all cheering him on, mostly mm -hmm. uh, mainland Chinese using VPN to um, you know access all those uh, information that's banned by the firewall. Yeah. You grew up in China, mm -hmm. um, and you write about this being a moment, and you we've talked about how maybe this is the, you know, I don't know how, what the metaphor is, whether there's a the, the dam, there's a crack in the dam, or whatever you want to <laughs> think about it. But mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, what is your sense of the ability of people who control information to turn this back now that it sort of has some momentum? Right. I mean, as I reported in the story, there were there was definitely this tightening uh, from uh, from top officials to think there are definitely too much negative and too much, uh, which is what journalism is, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion. Um, they want to control this narrative and make it more positive, focus on all the, uh, which is not untrue, you know, all the hospitals and uh, the medics, nurses, doctors who are absolutely devoted to um, to do whatever they can under the circumstances. And it's very hard to imagine that. So the tightening of media and government control, party control of media is not ha is not something that's new. It's been happening since the early 2010s. And I do not, I personally do not see this 
changing anytime soon. However, I think people do see all those voices um, on the internet, including the night um, one of the whistleblower doctors mm. uh, passed away, and people uh, hashtag I demand, we demand freedom of speech started this is to when Liang Li. right, right started to trend. So, you know, I don't I don't see any top down structural changes coming, and I don't think the experts I spoke with were optimistic in that sense, but this is definitely a moment where there wasn't such kind of concentration and eruption of emotions and opinions, and people do want to see things change for the better, and I would, and some people speak of numbness after this, like you see a big news once the news cycle is over as if mm. nobody quite remember what happened just a few days ago. Uh, but I think this is a this is a big crisis, not just for the government, for the people, but mm. uh, for everyone who works in media, um, traditional or uh, internet outlets. I uh, I think this is a shock to people, and and what they see, what they observe, the frustration is not gonna. I I think is not gonna leave. It's gonna stay with all those individuals mm. who really saw something and felt something. You know, I, I read occasionally reports that the because the, the numbers coming out of this virus already are horrific mm-hmm. in terms of the number of people sick and the number of people dying. Yes. Um, but that I've, you keep reading that this is still way underreported in terms of the official counts. Do you have a, do you have a read on that? Right. There are at least three mainstream Chinese outlets that did well-reported stories that's basically giving a message that there are people dying, they are not included in the numbers. And the way this works is that so to be diagnosed, you have to use those test kits and from what I heard from people on the ground that test kits are in shortage and also it doesn't usually you need more than one to really confirm it. Sometimes you get mm-hmm. negative, but then you get positive mm-hmm. again. So um, a lot of people, things are happening so quick that sometimes people just died without being diagnosed. So they would be, you know, on the certif- death certificate would say they died of unnamed or unclear pneumonia. So those numbers and from those uh, reporting shows that it's not one or two. All those people who are posting on the internet saying, help my family, we can't be admitted. Mm. Um, and so many of whom, this sometimes happened to the entire family. So you would say, you already lost someone and then this person is not doing so good. So just from from those Chinese media reporting from all the anecdotal, which is really endless posts on, mm. on Weibo, one could easily imagine that the numbers, um, the reported numbers are only those strictly who were admitted and Mm -hmm. were uh, able to get the test kit and were diagnosed and died in the hospital that were counted. Yeah. Hanjang, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I hope you keep writing about this. It's terrific to have you. Um, You can read our ongoing coverage of media and the coronavirus at CJR and at our daily email, the media today, which you can access via the CGR website. Meantime, follow us for everything else going on in media, and we'll see you next week. Mm